I'm going to ask you to turn in the Word of God this morning. It's Colossians 1. Just to give you some sense of where we're going to be going now, as I have been seeking the Lord's will about what to uh, preach to you in the form of a series, I have uh, landed upon the idea of preaching through Paul's prayers. Preaching through Paul's prayers so that we can learn together as a church how to pray as the apostle prayed. So we're going to be preparing a, a series of sermons from the great prayers of the apostle. Today we turn up this one from Colossians chapter 1, and our text is Colossians 1, 9 through 12. And I'm going to ask you, whether you're here this morning or whether you're at home, to stand up. Stand up where you are, and let's give reverence to the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living and glorious God. The apostles said, For this reason also, since the day we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all things, with wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you will walk in a worthy manner of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Lord who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You may be seated. I think you all be able to agree with me this morning that five of the most encouraging words you can hear as a believer is, I am praying for you. I am praying for you. It doesn't get any more encouraging than those soul-thrilling words because that means God's going to get involved. And when God gets involved, it means grace. Grace for us. So those words that uh, we think about here, I'm praying for you, have such a profound and powerful heart impact. But I might take a step beyond that this morning and get you to agree with me on something else, which is this. Uh, what is even more soul-thrilling and encouraging is to be prayed over by others. To hear other people stand with us and pray out loud for us and speak words in prayer for us. And so as the Spirit of God leads them to pour out uh, ardent prayers to lift up gracious petitions on our behalf at the very throne of grace, what it does is it uh, enables the soul to begin to drink in that peace and that calm which descends from heaven's throne above. I'm praying for you. Deeply encouraging, soul-thrilling words. Because they comfort the heart. I imagine that's how these Colossians felt. I imagine that's how these Colossians felt as they read this letter for the first time. Because the Apostle Paul essentially, after speaking thanksgiving over them, says, I'm praying for you. Imagine that. This Apostle that they have never met. This Apostle that they have never seen by face. This Apostle whom they know. This one who is self-evidently a man of God. This one who was sacrificing and laying down his life for the expansion of the kingdom of God. 
This holy apostle who is writing inspired letters and receiving direct revelation from God. This one who's going around the Roman Empire and turning the world upside down for Christ. He's praying for them. And I'm sure this morning as they heard those words in the testimony, the apostle says, I'm not just praying for you. I am praying relentlessly and unceasingly for you. And then he spells out exactly what it is he's saying for them so that they can have the encouragement of knowing not only is he praying, but what he is praying for. You know, you think about that this morning, people of God. These words aren't just for the apostle. They weren't just for the Colossians. These are words of the apostle for the church. Because when Paul prayed for the Colossian church, he is praying for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for us. And so this morning what we're going to do is take up these words of the apostle about his prayer report from them and learn from them. Learn how to pray and for what to pray. That's important. Learn how to pray and for what to pray. And as you step back and you draw in the whole picture of this text here, which records for us the Apostles' Prayer for the church, I think basically it's saying this, that the Apostle is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God so that they would learn how to serve Jesus Christ. The Apostle is praying they'll be filled with the knowledge of God so that they will learn how to serve Jesus Christ. In other words, he is praying for knowledge in application. We're going to break this text down into three parts. A single petition, a worthy purpose, and a fourfold description. Let's think about the single petition. We see it for ourselves here in verse 9. As the Apostle says, for this reason also, since the day... We heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's Paul's single request for the church. We're going to see other aspects of it, but the very first thing we want to see this morning as we think about this single petition or prayer request are its qualities. Its qualities. Think, first of all, here as you read this whole statement, the one thing that we can establish very easily and first off and just make sure that we're seeing it and tracking with it, the apostle said he's praying. And it's interesting because he uses two words for prayer here. He didn't need to, but he used to. Again, teaching us how to pray. He says, I pray for you. And that verb pray uh, that the apostle uses here is the most general and common term the apostle uses to speak about prayer. It is speaking of prayer in general. The other thing that's added to it that I think is of some significance and we'll circle back to in, in a moment is that he says, I'm praying without ceasing for you. Which of course doesn't mean that the apostle can't do anything but prayer, uh, pray. It, it means he's praying at regular intervals. But there's consistency and steadiness. It's not intermittent or sporadic. It's regular. So the first thing he says, I pray. The second thing he says, which is related to prayer, he says here that I am asking for you. I am asking for you. Now that's a more important word in a sense because it moves on from what is general to what is specific. This particular word speaks of specificity, of itemizing, of making something very concrete. 
And so what the apostle is assuring them of is not just that he's saying, Lord, re remember those good old Colossians. That'd be good. I'd take that prayer. But he's uh, telegraphing and indicating for us what we're going to find out as we read on, that he's praying things that are very specific for them. And that's where the encouragement comes in. Not just to know we're being prayed for, but solemn and specific words are being lifted up to the throne of grace. And so, first of all, we see here that he is praying. The second thing that we see here about the qualification of the prayer is that it is a prayer for the Colossians. It is a prayer for the Colossians that's bound up here in this word. I am asking that you may be filled. I pray for you. He's praying for the Colossians. And we've already indicated this just for a moment briefly. The apostle doesn't know them. Uh, just to confirm that in your own thinking, just turn over to Colossians 2.1. And Paul makes it very clear they've never seen his face. Which doesn't mean that when he preached in Colossae, he wore a veil. It means he's never been there. And yet, he has a spiritual bond and connection to this church. And likely the reason is because this church was founded and planted by Paul's dear friend Epaphras. We're not going to make this sermon about Epaphras, but we can say a couple of things about him that encourage us. Number one, uh, he's in jail with Paul right now. As Paul is lifting uh, this prayer for them, he's in Roman prison, about ready to give his life. And next to him in bonds and chains is this man Epaphras who's from Colossae. And virtually all scholars would agree with this, that they believe that this man Epaphras came down to Ephesus, which is not all that far away from Colossae. And he came down there when Paul was preaching and teaching in that school of Tyrannus for a couple of years. And so this man learned at the apostles' feet. He was one who was thoroughly furnished with knowledge and had been instructed in the things of the Lord. And when Paul speaks of Epaphras, it's as if his light, his face lights up with a glow. He loves this brother. And this Epaphras was their original pastor. I think you can see that for yourself in, in verse 7 here in our text where it says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved and fellow bondservant, who is faithful servant of Christ, on our behalf, you learned these things from him. He was their pastor, teacher, and church planter. And uh, that means that this congregation has been well taught. It's been faithfully catechized. It's been thoroughly instructed in the faith. It's, it's a solid church. And just so you know it's a solid church, again, to confirm this in your own thinking, you, you could turn over to chapter 2 again and see, that their hearts are encouraged, having been knit together in love. They're attaining all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a, in a true knowledge of God. This is a well-founded congregation. And, and so that leads to another quality of his prayer, is that it flows from thanksgiving. It flows from thanksgiving. Notice the two prepositional phrases at the outset of verse 9. For this reason, since the day we have heard of it. It's interesting to note here, the Apostle Paul, as he begins to relate his prayers for the church in Colossae, says, I do it out of the overflow of my heart. I'm giving thanks for you because of what you are in Christ. 
it, open your Bibles there in chapter 1, and we can just in bullet point fashion just pluck some things out of here very quickly. Verse 4, for instance, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have to the saints. Verse 5, they heard the hope that was laid up in heaven through the word of truth. Verse 6, you received the testimony that they are constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Verse 7, we've just covered it. They've learned the faith from a faithful man who is, as the apostle says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, they abound in love that the Spirit has produced in them. So think about this congregation. Paul makes it very clear that they have had a genuine experience of grace. They are characterized by that great triad of Christian virtues and grace, faith, hope, and love. They are a congregation that's sound in doctrine. They are a congregation that is abounding in love. So there's a connection between their doctrinal confession and how they live. And yet, it's precisely because of all that they are in Christ and all of this great progress and grace that they've made that the Apostle Paul prays for them. The prayer is the outflow of his gratitude for heaven's mercies to them. So let's look at what he prays for. Let's look at what he prays for now in the single petition in verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the heart of his request, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That knowledge is going to be qualified with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But really, the heart of the request is right here in this phrase, filled with the knowledge of his will. He wants them to grow in knowledge. And that's spiritual knowledge, by the way. I think we can all agree that. We don't have to spend any time on that. He wants them to have a mind saturated and filled to the brim with spiritual knowledge. But what's important is the qualifier. What kind of spiritual knowledge will it be? Because not all kinds of spiritual knowledge are created equal. There's true spiritual knowledge and there's false spiritual knowledge. And so he qualifies that prayer request for being full of knowledge with the phrase, knowledge of his will. Now I could go one of two ways. That, that could refer to the secret will of God. Sometimes we, we use that phrase when we're saying we're just trying to discern God's will for our lives. And what we mean by that is we're not sure what God has decreed. We're not sure of the unfolding path of providence in front of us. So we're praying and we're seeking what God wants. But we use this term will in, a, in another way. It's called the decretive will. The things that are are written down are the revealed things. The decretive is the secret. The revealed things are the things that are in the word of God right here. And I think that's exactly how the apostle is using that term here. For example, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, It is God's will you should be sanctified. Now, no one here this morning would mistake that as the, the hidden will of God. No, no one here is this morning is wondering, well, I, I wonder if God wants me to grow in sanctification. 
You know he does because he said, you be holy for I am holy. You know it already. Revealed will. How about uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16? Rejoice always. <clears throat> Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will in Christ Jesus. Well, what are all those things which are the will? It's, it's the commands here. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. Revealed will. That's what's in view here. As he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, he is praying that their minds would be saturated with the knowledge of God that is disclosed in his word. And he's spotlighting this for a reason. You see, he wants the mind of God, the will of God disclosed in Scripture, to be the thing that is their guide and not something else. Normally in sermons on a book like this, we would have already dug into the problem. We don't have a lot of time to develop the problem, but there's a reason why Paul is praying as he's praying. There's a reason why he's writing this book. And you can see that for yourself in verse 18 of chapter 2. Just turn over there for a second with me because you'll begin, and we can't spend long in this, but long enough to simply show this morning that there is a reason why he's praying in this way for the church. In verse 18 of chapter 2, you get this. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without a cause by his fleshly mind. Let's pluck it out. Let's pull it out. And the key, uh, the key statement here is this idea of taking his stand on visions he has seen. This is about accessing truth in a visionary way. Uh, one um, uh, lexicon or dictionary interprets like this, going into detailed information about things seen. There's a bit of trickiness in discerning exactly what the meaning of this word is. But everybody agrees on this, that the problem that the Colossians are encountering spiritually is alternate forms of revelation. The issue is the heresy, the false doctrine circulating at least around the camp of the church, maybe not yet penetrating into the camp of the church, but certainly a danger to the church is this. How will I find God? How will I know His will? How do I know what's right and what's true and what's good for me? And there was a group talking about how they were accessing the knowledge of God through these visions. And their fanciful interpretations of spirituality. And all of it was dangerous. A good portion of, of contemporary scholars believe this is some sort of incipient form of Gnosticism, which was extremely dangerous later on in the last part of the first century and on to the second, denying the physicality of the creation and the goodness of God's work and about this fanciful world of spiritual realities that had nothing to do with biblical revelation. But I want us to get the point here. When the Apostle Paul prays that the church will grow in the knowledge of his will, he is putting a circle around the things that he wants the church to know or to regard as that deposit of information that I'm supposed to grow in the knowledge of. 
You see, and that matters to us this morning because uh, even though our struggle and battle may not precisely parallel the particular source and origin of this idea of going into fanciful detail about spiritual realities and things seen in these esoteric dreams, we still have a battle in the church today about what is the source of authority. We still have a battle going on in the church today about where do I find God? We have a battle in the church today about this. How do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know how God wants me to worship Him? How do I know how God wants me to proceed in this spiritual life? How do I approach God? I had a, a, a sincere, I believe, person tell me that they had a wonderful encounter with God at a church uh, they had visited where uh, he said, you know, we had a time of playing very emotional music, and then the pastor, well, he asked for all the lights to turn off, and we sat there for a half hour in pure silence contemplating God, and he said, I never felt like I'd touched the face of God before. And I said, really? D does the Word of God authorize me to sneak up to God? Did God tell me to approach Him this way? But you see here that the source and origin of the authority was how did impact, how did his emotions feel? This is dangerous. And it's all over Christianity. And so there's a parallel in this sense this morning as we hear this prayer request and Paul's relentless prayer for the church. He says, I want you to be shaped in all of your conceptions about God, based upon nothing but His will revealed in Scripture. Now he qualifies that, and he expands upon it, and he draws it out here in the qualifying elaboration at the end of the verse, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You can see that spiritual applies to both terms, to uh, wisdom and understanding. Both of these are about practical application of the word. The wisdom side is taking the knowledge of God revealed in Scripture and turning it into practice in your life. And that's going to be confirmed by what we read in verse 10. So it's about that, this application of Scripture and its principles to life. Understanding is this, um, I would say maybe the best way we could think of it is this component of discernment, right? Discernment. You see, it's that ability to measure up a situation and understand it. It's that spiritual capacity to take the Word of God in its principal form and apply it to my life. Now, that's spiritual. In other words, it's spirit-produced. As, as the Word of God is being illuminated to my mind, this is the fruit that the Apostle would have seen worked in us. That I grow in wisdom. You see, it's one thing to be able to parrot the right answers. And that's good. But step two to maturity is not just confessing those, but understanding what they mean so they impact my life. And that's what God would have us experience. Our life impacted by the Word of God. 
So before we move on, let's just think about this prayer. And I want us to, to seize on, on one thing here. And we've touched around it already. And, and you're probably already tracking uh, with me on this point. But you see here, this is a mature congregation that's well instructed in the faith, well founded in Christ, well taught by this great preacher, the bondservant of Jesus, this beloved brother Epaphras. And, and, and yet here the apostle is saying something to them. They need to move forward. They need to go. They can't stay where they are. They have got to abound more. And the means for that is relentless prayer. I want us to understand here this morning, people of God, that the way forward in our spiritual life is laying hold of this means. Relentless prayer. Paul says, uh, I am praying this for you without ceasing. And so as we're learning about prayer from Paul's prayers this morning, what we learn is something that's critical for us is that if we are to grow in this way forward, it will be through us laboring with this means. Relentless prayer is that you. Is that you this morning? Are you learning to be a relentless prayer? See, I hope you are. Because there isn't a pathway forward for you spiritually into greater levels of maturity apart from that. I trust that we're in a difficult season and so everybody's on their knees. But just tuck this away for the, for the future when it feels a little bit easier. We're not going to leave this behind. We're learning to grow right now from our providential circumstances. We're learning how to develop this maturity which Paul seeks in the church. So we see here this single petition. Let's turn now to see, second of all, the, um, the next aspect of this prayer, which is its purpose. And the purpose is fairly straightforward. Um, verse 10, as you can see yourself, so that. Hope you all have that. Your first words in verse 10 should be, so that. And, and what that tells you is whatever follows in verse 10 is connected to what he said in verse 9. What's your main verb in verse 9? Be filled. That's your main verb. Now, you connect verse 10 with that and you see why Paul wants them to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And that is so that. Y'all got that? Okay, so now you know purpose is in view here. What is the purpose? Well, that purpose is set forth fairly plainly here. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, when Paul wants to speak about the Christian life, he loves to use the word walk. Ephesians 4 verse 1. One of the great pivot points in all of Scripture after expounding the depths of the mysteries of God's grace, he pivots away from that towards the redemptive ethical application of the gospel. And he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. But walk there is your metaphor for the Christian life. 
You see it again in Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love. You see it again in Ephesians 5.15. Be careful how you walk. Oh, we could do this all day, so let's not do Bible baseball. You get the point. Walk is a metaphor. And by the way, it reaches all the way back to the Old Testament. It reaches back to Abraham. As near as I can tell, the first time this has been used, and if it's used before that, I'm happy to learn of it. Genesis 17.1. Genesis 17.1. God comes to Abraham, and he says uh, to Abraham, he says to him, Walk before me and be blameless. A biblical metaphor for the Christian life. But it's a call. It's a command. It's a duty. Uh, the apostle doesn't say, be seated. This is a term of vigor. It is a term of energy. It is a term that says, get up. It is a call to action. The presumption is the believer is already walking and the apostle is saying, Keep it up. Be in motion. Be working. Be serving. Be active. The Christian life is always a life that's moving forward. The Bible doesn't know of a Christian life of resting on our laurels and pious accomplishments. Always urging the persistence, the walking forward in Christ. And so he says here, I want you to walk worthily. That's a way that's consistent with the great calling you have. It's, it's modified even further here in the next clause to please him in all respects. See here, the, the comprehensiveness of the walk is clarified here. It is to please God in Christ in everything. The totality of our life is to be under the banner of Jesus Christ and with the aim of pleasing him. So it couldn't be more plain now why we needed the petition in verse 9 to be filled with the knowledge of God which is located in the scriptures because I have this grand and glorious and all comprehensive calling and I am entirely inadequate to face it and to carry it out and to execute it based upon my own insight. I don't have the common sense to carry this calling forward. What I need is to be filled with the knowledge of God so that I'll know how to walk. We need to be instructed. Now, the third point is very easy here. It is the unfolding of um, this walk. And, and here, I think we can be grateful this morning that the Apostle is is very specific. Remember I, I told you as we looked at the beginning of verse 9 that Paul uses two words for prayer. The one is pray, the second is ask. We said the second is more specific because it's about imploring God for items, for things. Well, you've seen it in the petition, but, but the more you move here, the more specific Paul gets. Because it's not just walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's a lot. It's what's more, please him in every respect. And that's a lot. And now it gets even more granular. Notice we have a series of four descriptions of what it looks like to please God 
in how you walk, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power, joyful thanksgiving. We'll take them apart one by one. We're not going to spend very long on them, but think about this for a moment. You can't walk away here uh, this morning and say, I, 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 don't, I don't know yet what it means to walk worthily uh, of this calling. You, you can't walk away and say, I have the faintest idea what it means to be filled with the knowledge of God so that I can please God in every respect. Because you're given four things here that you're to aim at and target in your life. And the very first one is bearing fruit in every good work. It's an organic metaphor. It's borrowed from the world of agriculture, from the tree or, or from the vine. Bear fruit. But, but the specific thing about it, which, which is what we want to lay hold of, because we're trying to get specific here, is what is bearing fruit? Well, we're not left uh, ignorant or unaware in every good work. What are good works? Well, you know this if you memorize the Heidelberg Catechism, don't you? Every good work there is spelled out for you. It's to uh, obey God's commandments from the heart, out of faith, unto His glory. That's my calling as a believer. And this has got a parallel text. It's Ephesians uh, 2.10. Now, you don't have to turn there, but you can listen to it. Here it is. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What word do you suppose I'm interested in here? For. The very first word in verse 10 for. Why I'm interested in it. Because four makes me look back to the verse you learned on your mama's knee, right? What verse did you learn on your mama's knee? For by grace have you been saved by faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift, lest any man should boast. This is one of those verses that reformed people turn to and savor. Because it tells us what is precious about the doctrine of salvation. Which is that every single ounce of it is grace. And then just to make sure that we understood that. And so we don't go muddying up, kicking mud in the, the, the pure, pristine, glorious, pure waters. It, it says in the follow-up verse, not of works. We love this text. Grace, beginning to end, 100%. God saves us by grace. God gives us faith to exercise by grace. It's all grace. Christ is the object of salvation, grace. But look at four then. Come back to your, to your verse 10. Four, because you have been saved by grace, now what? You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do that. Because you have experienced grace and received grace, your life is now different. It's on this track. The track that your life is supposed to be on is this life of good works. In fact, the apostle goes on to say, this is the reason why you've been recreated in Jesus Christ. So that it will be unto 
good works. And what's even more, he says God prepared them beforehand. He's, he's got it under control. He knows exactly where he's leading you in your life. This is what he's saying this morning, people of God. When you think about what does it mean for me to please God in every respect, the Apostle Paul says, I got the answer. Bearing fruit in every good work. Committing yourself to lawful obedience to Christ's commands by faith at a regenerate heart so that to be done to the glory of God. That's what you're called to do. That's what it means to walk worthily and please the Lord. How about the next one? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Good grief. Paul won't let this go, will he? He just prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And what does he do? He comes back to it when he's describing what it means to please God. He says, you've got to grow in your knowledge of God. There's got to be movement, maturing, growing, increasing in your knowledge of God. This is amazing here. Paul's doubling down on the call of the believer to, to be students, to be those who are cultivating a mind that is able to direct the hands. This is important. To be pleasing God in every respect, we are constantly needing to have a mind furnished with biblical truth and sound doctrine. And maybe I'll just put in a plug for catechizing. This is one reason why we catechize from the time our children are old enough to talk. Because we believe that the covenant life is the life shaped by sound doctrine and the word of God. You remember how God said of it to Abraham after he covenanted with him formally. He gave him the great sign and seal of the old covenant, which was what? Circumcision. You learn about this in the next chapter, Genesis 18. He says, I have chosen him because he will command and teach his family in order that I may bring upon him everything that I promised. You see, the covenant was designed to have within it this mechanism of, of perpetuation. And the way the covenant would be perpetuated would be through the godly instruction that the home and the church provide. So that the children would learn how to walk in the Lord from the time they're small. And so this morning what we hear are voices of the children singing. Why? Because we're not excluding them from the realm of Christ. Because they are to be taught. They are to be in the worship of God. They are to understand what it means from the time of being children. That their life is the Lord's. Increasing, growing in knowledge. One way we do that is we catechize. We repeat and rehearse sound answers that are full of biblical truth. So that we are furnished with knowledge. Finally, I want us to see the last thing here. So that all of us walk away today with a full head and a full heart. What does it mean? What does it mean for me? Uh, to, to live a life that's pleasing unto God. Fourthly, he says here, giving thanks to the Father. Now, let me just back up a second, because really, you, you should have the, 
the joyously there at the beginning, uh, at the, rather the end of verse 11, at the beginning of verse 12. It should be there. From the grammatical structure of the text, we can, we can say very definitively that Paul is not just saying that the Christian life is about giving thanks. We can say that the Christian life is about joyfully giving thanks. See that? That's different, isn't it? Okay, it's already hard not be joyful when you're giving thanks. You, know, you wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you for this day. Who's not joyful in that? Who's not joyful to, to wake up in the freshness of the morning and say, God, you gave me another day of life to serve you. When you go about your house and you see all the provisions that, that God has given you, who can't be joyful? Who doesn't thank God for his mercy? But, but this is a, just an added way to stress something that's critical to us, is, is that the apostle says, this is the Christian life to joyfully give thanks. I know it wasn't in our heart to be begrudging in our thanks, but it's so good to be reminded of this heartfelt nature of thanksgiving, joyfully. Challenge yourself, be joyful in your thanksgiving. But, but notice here, the object of thanks here is the father of mercies. You see here, the text says, giving thanks to the father. Why? Because the father, almighty, the first person of the Trinity, is the source and fountain of all the grace that we have in our lives. You see, it's the father who decreed it and planned it. It's the Father who's executing it. It's the Father who's pouring it out. It's the Father who's giving us pardon. So, so here when he's uh, praying here, when he's teaching us the specifics of the Christian life, he says, make sure that your thanksgiving and your gratitude is person-focused. You can praise Christ and the Holy Spirit. Of course we do. The apostle here is saying something very important for us this morning that we lay hold of as we're joyfully giving thanks to God as a part of the Christian life. We spotlight the Father of mercies. Thank you, Father. And the reason, of course, is the grace deposited for us. This great share of the inheritance of the saints in life. The Christian life is about thanks and gratitude. Four qualities mark this life out, which is pleasing, fruit-bearing, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with power, joyfully giving thanks. That's a lot. We have much to be thankful for, much to consider, to put into practice, and as we walk away from our, our text this morning, I, I want us to just walk away with a couple of things to chew on. And, and the first thing that I want us to chew on and to think about by way of application is that this pursuit of a worthy walk is inseparably connected with growth in the knowledge of God's Word. This pursuit of a worthy walk is inseparably connected with growth in the knowledge of God's word. In other words, what the apostle is calling upon us here is to live out of the word. To have a life shaped by the word. 
This is critical for us. He says, be filled with the knowledge of God so that you may walk in a manner worthy. Being filled with this knowledge, acquiring this knowledge, laying hold of this knowledge, hiding this knowledge in the depths of our soul is critical and foundational. We could say it's the necessary and essential condition to me living. i got to have this knowledge. If you want to have a blessed life this morning, people of God, I want to bring this home one more time to us. Each and every one of us has an obligation before the Lord to take the Word of God into hand and savor it. To make it ours. We're all going to do that in various levels. And sometimes I say, I don't care how many chapters of the Bible you read a day. I just want you to walk away from a chapter Knowing something, thinking on something, dwelling upon something. I've I got to be honest with you, there's a lot of times I read the Bible, I can't get past three verses, and I, I just got to stop. This is so rich, why would I read more? I, I, I can't possibly do anything with, with more today. That's all right. But what we are supposed to do is have a life sheep by the Word, and so that means we have to keep coming back to the Scriptures. Keep coming back to the Word of God and taking that Word and living it out. The second thing that's bound up in this point here about this inseparable connection, our life is to be shaped by the Word and our learning is supposed to be aimed at living. Let's never forget that. Yes, our life is to be shaped by the Word, but our learning is to be for living. Our learning is to be for living. Paul did not pray. He did not say, I pray that you will all become learned spiritual eggheads. Paul did not pray, I hope everybody in the church has a, a brain the size of a bowling ball and stick figures for legs, hands, and feet. Now what he prayed is that you'll be full of knowledge for a reason. So that it will shape our life. I shared with you this comment from a seminary professor I've never forgotten, and I regularly pass on to others. Don't bother learning more than you're willing to live. Don't bother. Don't bother learning more than you're willing to live. I have been shocked sometimes over the years by people who are very new to the faith that seem to have everything figured out. In fact, I was once told by a young man who was very new to the Reformed faith that he couldn't figure out what was the point of being a Christian anymore because he knew everything there was to know about the Reformed faith. And I said, well, here's something that you can keep learning about the rest of your life. How depraved you are. Because there's no bottom to that. You know everything. Let's start with that. How sinful are you? Because if I don't know how sinful I am, I'm not running back to the reservoir of grace, which is what I've got to do if I'm going to be built up and maturing in the Christian life. I've got to constantly be going back to the cross, to the Savior, to Christ. Let's never forget this. The learning is essential. It is required. It is necessary. But the learning has a purpose. So I'll learn how to be godly. 
So I'll learn how to please Jesus Christ so that my heart will overflow with thanksgiving and gratitude to the Father. That's the first thing I want to say. The second point of application that I want to bring home is this, is prayer is directed towards spiritual transformation. We can all agree with that, right? Prayer is to be directed, at least in part, to spiritual transformation. I think we could say that was the point of this, right? He, the apostle said, I'm going to let you know, I'm going to bless you this morning, church. I'm praying that you will be filled with the knowledge of God so that you will walk worthy. The praying is connected to an end, which is spiritual transformation. Paul, as a mature believer, shows us how to use prayer. And I think this is critical that we incorporate this understanding of prayer into our thinking. As I was thinking about this point to see how I could bring it out to help you understand what I'm driving at and what I'm thinking of here when I say that, is that um, Jesus taught his disciples and us how to pray, right? And he gave us six petitions, didn't he? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. There's three requests already. Those are about God. There's three more. And yes, I know that give us this day our daily bread is there. But what follows it? Two more. Forgive us our sins and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. One of them was about daily bread. And God wants you to call out to him for daily bread. He, he, he loves it. As, as a good father, he wants to open up his hand and give you everything you need for daily bread. But there's more to prayer than that. Challenge yourself this morning as you read Paul prayer, pray for the spiritual transformation of the church. Challenge yourself this morning to seize upon prayer. And its aim here, the apostle shows us that it will lead us into greater spiritual transformation. If we're not using prayer that way, we're not praying as God would have us to pray fully. So let's be challenged this morning to seek help from the Lord, grace from the Lord, strength from God, in order that he will shape us and direct our paths into his glory. And let's use this thing that the apostle shows us that he uses, which is prayer. As we do that, as we bow our knees before God through Jesus Christ and seek what Paul sought, we can have hearty confidence that God will hear us and he'll answer us in his grace. Father, we thank you for a classroom this morning. But it's really not a classroom. It was more about a sanctuary with a pulpit. Because we learned uh, from the great apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, what prayer looks like. It, it, it encourages our heart to know that uh, your apostle was praying for the church. But even in praying for the church, we're taught what it looks like to pray. So help us, Lord, this morning to be good learners, subservient learners, ready to learn learners. 
and that we would take in this uh, great wealth, a spiritual uh, treasure chest, if you will, of instruction on, on how to pray, so that our lives would be shaped and be changed by the unleashing of your word upon our life, so that it will be unto our growth and grace that we may live to the glory of our Savior and please him in every respect. That's what we long for. Help us to do that, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.